You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Oh, hot diggity dog, friends. Uh, You know, one of the things I love about this job is reading in all the books that I get a chance to look at. And we have just received one of these 800-page books called A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA Secret War Experiments. We have been waiting for this book for 20, 30 years. It's out. Good old by H.P. Al Borelli, Jr. And we're going to touch a tiny bit on this later on today. The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret War Cold, Cold, Secret Cold War Experiments. Boy, they were terrible. All right. Well, are aliens really among us? A select group of people claim that they have direct contact with visitors to Earth. Today, more than a half a century later, the contactees are still telling their tales of personal alien encounters and maintain their cult-like status in the world of ufology. Nick Redfern's Contactees relates their thought-provoking, illuminating, controversial, of course, and sometimes bizarre stories in all their appropriately out-of-this-world glory. Nick Redfern is a full-time author and journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including UFOs, alien contact, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, government conspiracies, and paranormal phenomena. He writes regularly for a UFO magazine, 40 in Times, Paranormal Magazine, and Fate. His previous books include Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, Strange Secrets, A Covert Agenda, and There's Something in the Woods. Hey, I didn't read that one. Among his many exploits, Redfern has investigated reports of aliens in Mexico, lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, almost said London, <laughs> remember that song, remember, yeah. and crashed UFOs in the good old Etagene from a previous lifetime, United States. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Nick Redfern. Hey, Bob, how's it going? I am really fine. I, good. I just enjoyed this book to pieces. Oh, thank you. Uh, every now and then I get a chance to read stuff that, that uh, as I keep thinking about from 40, 50 years ago. But, hey, did you hear about the, the <laughs> book that just came out, 800 pages of A Terrible Mistake, The f- Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments? Yeah, I mean, that, I haven't actually heard about that book at all until you mentioned it. But, I mean, the story of Frank Olson is sort of like a definitive, you know, it's one of the definitive accounts, not just of the Cold War, but of the whole era of Cold War uh, issues relating to, like, mind control, you know, and the CIA's use of exotic drugs to create altered states and things like that. Oh, they Uh, wouldn't dare do something like that. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I'm sorry. I think in that respect, you know, it's it's a story that I think a lot of people are going to find interesting because a lot of people, you know, know snippets of the Frank Olsen story Mm -hmm. and the way in which, you know, it developed and then how in later years he the truth started to come out, and I think, you know, it's, as you say, it's time that, that somebody told the story in full, so I'm, I'm glad that's now happened. Well, I was looking forward to reading all the parts that Cheney and Rumsfeld had to deal with this, mm-hmm. of which they did, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nice to have a vice president of the United States that <laughs> that, <laughs> that was distributing LSD and with people who didn't know about it and stuff like Well, anyway, that's something else. But contactees, what are contactees? Well, basically, Bob, the contactees were, I guess, like a select group of people who primarily kicking off in the late 40s, early 50s, but, you know, some people say earlier, had contacts which I suppose differ very much from the more famous and more well-known abductions and abductees of today. You know, I think with today's ufological field, most people who, whether new to the subject or not, are familiar with this whole scenario of you know, sort of bug-eyed little aliens abducting people and subjecting them to medical experimentation. The contactees, however, were very different in the sense that they had more of like a one-to-one spiritual communication with reported extraterrestrials in isolated locations such as deserts, um, forests, that sort of thing. So in other words, it was more along the lines of instead of being abducted and 
treated in a cold clinical lab rat type scenario. It was really like a one-to-one exchange of ideas and, and thoughts on spiritual, excuse me, spiritual issues, the economy, the future of the planet and the human race, etc. And most of the contactees were kind of encouraged, whether consciously or otherwise, to go and spread the word, you know, and, and relate the, the the theories and ideologies of the so-called Space Brothers as they became known. Well, we'll touch more on what the Space Brothers taught them, but uh, I, I've always liked reading your work because I always find new stuff. And, oh, thanks. And especially in regards to Walter Winchell. I had forgotten this. Uh, I only heard a little bit about July 9th, 1949, um, uh, Walter Winchell brought to the attention of J. Edgar Hoover a story that he received from Mr. Jones of Los Angeles. I don't want to get too deeply involved in that, but I want to thank you for make, going the extra mile all the time when you do yeah, your well, research. Thanks. thanks, Bob. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the story, this particular story, the Walter Winchell story, is interesting because most people kind of associate the contactee arena with the early to mid-50s onwards, but this particular case in question deals with an encounter that a man had in the in California in 1947 when he was out um, hiking in the mountains of California and saw this huge, I think he described it as being like a fairground, um, kind of like a circus tent type thing come down out of the sky. It's like a big, huge balloon and land. And he felt, again, he had this feeling that it was extraterrestrially controlled and that the aliens possibly had some concerns about our development of atomic weaponry. And of course, you know, these were staple parts of the contact team movement of the 50s. But to find a story very similar but documented in the FBI files of the 40s, you know, pushes back the barriers a little bit of when these encounters may actually have begun. Mm-hmm. And also, thank you for the, uh, um, the time you spent with Dan Fry. Mm. Um, he was quite a quite an interesting character. A lot of us had to spend time with him years ago, and and uh, uh, I think he really added some light to Mr. Dan Fry there. Things that I couldn't quite figure out myself. The problem always is when you s- become friendly with some of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to say I get biased, but I do. Yeah. You know, if you like <laughs> if you like them as people, you, you know, you kind of like to want to believe what they say. Mm-hmm. But that, but obviously. Uh, lot he had to say and do was was quite questionable but there was george Adamski almost before everybody else um who claimed to have met human-like aliens in the california desert and that was 1952 please tell us a little bit about brother george Adamski. yeah i guess really bob Adamski, more than anybody else was the one person who everybody saw sort of i guess associates with the contactee arena and Adamski was born in Poland in the in the final years of the 19th century, and when he was just a small child, his family moved to the U.S. and he finally settled um, in California. And he actually had an organization in the 1930s called the Royal Order of Tibet, which was essentially a kind of alternative lifestyle spiritual organization. So, in other words, he was someone who was perhaps almost primed to have like a an alternative UFO encounter because he had this this background, I guess, in, in esoteric areas. And certainly that's what happened. He had a number of UFO sightings at a distance in the skies over California in the late 40s, but then said that while he was out with friends um, in the California desert in 1952, like a lot of the contactees, he felt compelled to go out to one particular area of the desert and said that as he did so, this sort of classic flying saucer-type craft came down out the skies, landed, and this very human-looking alien got off the craft, which was described as looking like a, very much like a human being, but with long hair and wearing what was described as kind of like a a ski suit, like a one-piece ski suit-type outfit. And there was reportedly a type of telepathic um, exchange rather than, you know, a a voice-to-voice communication again, warning about the perils of nuclear war, atomic destruction, things like that. And this, of course, was just the first, you know, encounter that Adamski talked about. He actually reported, you know, a number of incidents throughout his life and and wrote a number of books or co-wrote a number of books about his experiences. And 
his first book, for example, with uh, written with Desmond Leslie, excuse me, Desmond Leslie, an Irish author, actually sold in excess of 120,000 copies in its first printing. So it just goes to show, you know, the sheer extent and level of of interest in Adamski's stories. What was he personally like? Adamski, well, you know, Adamski was one of these people who, interestingly enough, like a lot of the contactees, was actually very down-to-earth, but, uh, but on the other hand, telling an extraordinary story. And I think that that typifies many of these people in the sense that they, it was almost like they were plucked out of nowhere to to follow the approach that they followed. You know, they, they went on this almost like a like a spiritual endeavor to spread the word of the Space Brothers, as these particular type of long-haired, human-looking aliens became known. And, you know, it wasn't like he or any or Dan Pryor or any of the others had anything particular about them that would make them stand out. It was as if, almost as if, you know, I kind of speculate in the book in places that possibly these extraterrestrial entities chose people at random so that perhaps, for example, the governments, etc., wouldn't be able to track them down because there was no sort of rhyme or reason to the people they were picking. And I think that's typical with Adamski. You know, he was just a normal person placed in an extraordinary situation. Well, also, thank you for what you um, had to say, and especially in tying George Hunt Williamson into George Adamski. Uh, who, who, Hunt Williamson has written some interesting books, especially a lot of focus on... Uh, South America down there and what was, yeah. all the stuff that was going on down there. And a lot of people ignore Hunt Williamson. I think that's a mistake. Yeah, he was another person, you know, with sort of similar beliefs and, and encounters and, you know, in the same time frame as well. George Van Tassel. Oh, I, that, what, that's an interesting name. He was a 1950s contactee, and he claimed, again, to have met aliens in the deserts of California. Uh, can you elaborate on Van Tassel's claims of allegedly being taken aboard a sta- uh, spacecraft? Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Um, well, Adams- excuse me, Van Tassel, like Adamski, was a very interesting character in that he had a notable background. Um, in Van Tassel's case, he was actually a very skilled aircraft mechanic and worked for the Hughes Aircraft Company, um, owned and run by the well-known Howard Hughes. And actually, um, Van Tassel and his wife were good friends with Howard Hughes. And... He and his family moved to an area in the California desert called Land, just outside the town of Landers, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour drive outside of Los Angeles into the desert. And he um, basically had an initial experience when out in the California desert on one particular occasion, again feeling compelled to go out there with no sort of rhyme or reason as to why. Um, his initial experience, he said, was almost like what today we would describe as I guess, like an out-of-body experience and what he described as um, an astral experience where, he, again, he felt you know, um, extracted from his body, if you like, and was put into communication with alien entities. Um, other experiences that, that soon followed were more of like a physical nature. But again, as with Adamski, you know, the stories are very much one-to-one um, accounts of you know, exchanges on the perils of nuclear war, etc., etc. But whereas Adamski um, co-wrote a book and went on the lecture circuit, Van Tassel felt compelled to put on his own conferences out at this place called Giant Rock in the California desert. And so um, influential, I guess, and successful were they that at times he had, ex- um, had audiences literally in figures of about 12,000 attending the conferences, you know, which is kind of extraordinary for a UFO conference today, never mind 50, 60 years ago, but it kind of really goes to show the sheer scale um, of interest that existed back then in the contact team movement. Nice photograph you included there with the giant rock mm. actually being, was that after the, was it an earthquake that did that? that no, actually what it was, um, it, it just, it, it, split, um, it just split in 2003 and part of it came away. Wow. And wow. But there actually was a, an earthquake in the area, which... Um, a giant rock actually survived the earthquake um, pretty much intact at the time. Well, we have a little clip that we're going to be playing in a little while uh, after our break. We come back from Giant Rock and some of the individuals there. What an interesting collection of folks they were. Um, and But we're going to take our first break. When we come back, 
obviously, FBI paid attention to these guys for very interesting reasons. And when we come back, we're going to find out why they wanted to focus on Ademski, Van Tassel, and, and others. With our guest, Nick Redfern, the book is Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, New Page Books. Tell us in your own words about your trip to Venus, how it started. Well, as I say, it started first with a very decided tingling all over my body. Uh, this tingling uh, finally extended to the mind area, and there was a clarification of mind, such as uh, it's hard to believe. I seemed to become one with the entire universe. Everything in the universe seemed to be contracted down to one small dot. Whoa. <laughs> Hey, that was Dana Howard. Good old tingling sensations. Oh, I just love... I have listened to these folks. <laughs> these uh, videotapes that we've had for like, what, 30 years or something like that. Uh, it's just lovely to hear Dana again. Wait to hear some of the others. And we're going to hear some of the others. Oh, some of these some of these uh, contactees were... Uh, well, not the contactees, but the people that was contacting them were wearing red, red skirts. Red skirts, pleated, red pleated skirts and black berets. Boy, it sounded like uh, it was really. D- did you like the way they dressed, Nick? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that um, fun? Yeah, sorry, I thought I wonder if you were asking the audience then. <laughs> well, yeah. but you know, I, ju- I just, the, some of their stories are just, just terrific. Oh, okay. Now, the FBI has released once classified files showing it spied very deeply on Adamski and Van Tassel. What do the files tell us about both of these guys and the FBI's conclusions on the contactees? Yeah, well, this, this is one of the interesting areas because, unfortunately, for a lot of people in the UFO subject today, you know, they, they kind of write off and ignore many of the contactee reports, which for me is a big mistake. And one of the reasons I say that is because none other than, as you just pointed out, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI watched many of the leading contactees for literally decades. And, of course... You know, an intelligence agency such as the FBI isn't going to waste endless manpower, time, money, etc., on watching people like this if they didn't feel there was a reason to do it. And, for example, George Van Tassel, who we mentioned earlier, his FBI file, which I managed to get hold of under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, is 398 pages long. Mm. You know, and for someone who's claiming to have met aliens out in the desert... That's a pretty extensive file. And, for example, he talks about how the FBI actually visited Van Tassel at his home in 1953. Two FBI agents traveled out there and spoke to him extensively about his experiences, which basically kind of touched upon things relative to where did he meet the aliens, what type of governments did they have, you know, were they communist, were they... Um, you know, did they have a U.S. or English-type government? These, these were literally the sort of questions that were brought up. Um, why were they here? What, were their, what was the reason for their interaction with the human race? And um, Van Tassel's FBI file covers 1953 to 65, so 12, 13 years. And that's pretty much the same with George Adamski. Uh, again, to give you an example of the sheer extent to which Adamski was watched, in 1959, he went on a lecture tour in New Zealand, and the FBI even had reports sent to them from the State Department, the U.S. State Department representative in um, New Zealand, who actually, I guess, covertly attended the one of Adamski's lectures and kind of prepared a review for the FBI on the on the lecture itself. So, in other words, you know, they were watching these people very deeply. And what I get from from reading the files is that the FBI was highly concerned about the way in which the contactees, I suppose, were influencing members of the public on large scales. You know, for example, George Adamski selling in excess of 120,000 copies of his first book. So I think the FBI viewed the contactee movement almost as like a, you know, a protest group of the 1960s that was challenging the conventions of society and telling people, or, you know, giving people the ability to live according to their rules and not the government's rules. And, of course, governments don't like that, you know, hence the reason why they, why they were watching these people. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like uh, the corporate 
structures these days are going to be watching us all the more closely, controlling our elections in the future. Mm, I'm sure. Well, I know, well, they wouldn't have done that in the past, of course. No. Of but course. only now. Only now. <laughs> that never happened before. There. Yeah, of course. Not. No, it's new stuff, Nick. Now, but but you know, you on page 43. I, I selected 43 because I was born in 1943. Right there at the top. This is one of the things you educated me about. Ademski's racial and near-Nazi views. And then, of course, you touch on Project Paperclip, which, mm. good Lord, uh, most Americans have n- very little knowledge about mm. that. And if you really want to get a good look at uh, uh, the Nazis' rocket scientists coming into America, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's a good place to look. Uh, so there was some reason to look into these guys. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, when when I talk about the, you know, the... FBI, for example, questioning people like Adamski and Van Tassel about the reported nature of governments and societies of these purported aliens they said they met. You know, Adamski himself actually said that in his view they had kind of like a, a communist, socialist type government. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the overriding message from many of the contactees was that we should all live in peace with each other, that we should do away with money and you know, all live at kind of the same level. Now, you know, if if you're talking to just a group of friends about that, nobody really cares. If you're on the lecture circuit telling 100,000-plus people that aliens are communists and they have a wonderful world and we should abolish money and live, you know, all as one, mm-hmm. then you are going to attract the attention of people like the FBI purely because, you know, you're saying things that I suppose in the 50s at the height of you know, the reds under the bed scares and McCarthyism and things like that were going against the grain. And, you know, you it wouldn't take the FBI long to find out that, hey, George Adamski is selling 100,000 books. George Van Tassel's getting audiences of 12,000 these conferences. Very quickly, these people go from just UFO researchers and witnesses to, in the FBI's eyes at least, you know, potential nas- national security issues. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Now, here's another <laughs> interesting fellow. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. I, 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 after you read these guys for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, but, you know, your book adds a lot of new stuff, though. That's the thing that's important about this work. Yeah, I tried not to go over old ground and just repeat accounts. But yeah, but who in the hell? something new to it as well. Yeah, who in the hell wants to read the same old stuff that yeah. we've been reading in the 50s, <clears throat> no, 60s, 70s, 80s? Uh, you've done some really important research, but that's what you're known for, Nick. Well, thanks. And that's the reason why uh, individuals, uh, obviously, not just uh, enjoy your work, but learn a great deal from it. And then Truman, I can't know if I can get this guy's last name, Bert Hurum. Bethram. Bethram, thank you. Yeah. Who claimed to have been in touch with a beautiful female alien in the 1950. Oh, this name is just great. Aura Reigns. Yeah. Oh, what, oh, what a beautiful name. Yeah, Please tell true. us about this fellow. He, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, Truman Bethram, his story, in many respects, sort of follows the same pathways of many of the other contactees, but in other respects, differs quite wildly. He was basically a very skilled, um, uh, I guess, highway um, road builder. Um, you know, he was someone who designed roadways and oversaw their production and construction, etc. And he was offered in the early summer of 1952 a new work contract working on a, an extensive new stretch of road in Nevada, which um, out about two hours' drive from Las Vegas. And this was very near a large old mesa called Mormon Mesa, you know, which, which went back literally millions of years when it was first you know, sort of, a, I guess, carved out of the environment. And he said that because his night shift, his working shift, was something like from mid-afternoon until the early hours of the morning. When he got off of his um, his duty at like two in the morning one night, he had to drive up the at the mesa, and fell asleep, and woke up to see this huge, um, literally like a several hundred foot definitive flying saucer come down and land. And when you read his book, it kind of sounds like almost like the scenario in Day the Earth Stood Still, you know, the old movie where this huge saucer comes down. Um, and like many of the contactees, he said this, these very human-like aliens dressed in, in uniforms came out. Um, the, the big difference in Bethram's story was that whereas many of the aliens, 
excuse me, many of the contactees described meeting what became known as the Space Brothers. He had a sort of a definitive encounter with what could be called, I guess, a, a space sister. Um, he said the the person who was sort of leading the the crew, if you like, of the craft was um, a beautiful space woman who identified herself as named Aura Rains. Um, and she comes across as like a very ethereal, mysterious, or almost like magical character, um, you know, who would sort of drift in and out of his life. And he would, again, he would feel compelled to go out to the desert and suddenly she would appear. You know, he almost was like an altered state journey to, you know, like a fairy kingdom or something like that in many respects where, you know, as if his mind was being played with and suddenly the, this beautiful woman would appear. But again, the the exchanges between the two of them were sort of very similar about the nature of the, the, the aliens' home planets, their reasons and motivations for coming here, i.e. to watch us and, you know, gauge our development and things like that. And, and also a, a concern about the government not being able to track them and find them and, and purely making their contacts at random so there would be no way to sort of follow any definitive pattern as to where they were going to land and when. Um, and, you know, a very controversial story and, um, you know, uh, in many respects sort of really far out, but in other respects very similar to many of the other contactees. And what made, what made um, Bethram's story interesting for me was in many respects he didn't try and capitalize on it or expand on it. He said that basically his encounters occurred from the, the summer of 1952 to late 52, and then they just came to an end. These beings came, they had a number of interactions and exchanges in the desert, and then they were gone. Um, so in other words, you know, he wasn't trying to capitalize on it for years and years later, claiming all new experiences. It was just, hey, this is what happened to me X number of years ago, take it or leave it, which in many respects, you know, adds weight to his claims. He wasn't just trying to come up with a new angle to get on the lecture circuit every other year, if you like. So. Well, um, I like his comment on her. Well, he made a lot of them. Little did I suspect that their captain would turn out to be a woman. And what a woman. <laughs> you write so well. It's fun. There are certain areas that I, uh, your humor comes out uh, well there. you know i mean th this is one of the things with the contactees that i try to point out is that many of them were sort of definitive characters mm -hmm. you know i think particularly today's ufo world it's, it's all seen as very much black and white and many of the witnesses no disrespect but you know the stories are very similar and many of the people come across very anonymous etc the contactees had real sort of Stand out memorable characters, whether it was Adamski, Van, you know, Adamski come from Poland and then, you know, setting up this organization, or Van Tassel hanging out with Howard Hughes, yeah. or Truman Bethurum, you know, with his story. They were they were definitive, memorable people, and that's you know, with quirky characters in some cases. That's one of the things you know I tried to get across in the book as well. So. Well, you sure did. Look at this one up here. I'll hold it at the microphone. This is a, a description of Aura Rain. Listen. Wearing a black and red beret and dark and large sunglasses. Boy, what an image. What an image that conjures up with the collar of her jacket turned up high. Yeah, this, this is one of the weird aspects of the story because that, that particular description was made by um, Bethram when he had an encounter with this woman, actually not late at night when she came out of the craft but actually in Vegas itself. Now, of course, that sounds outrageous, but according to Truman Bethram and many of the contactees, not just him, these because these aliens look very human, with a few subtle disguises like sunglasses, hats, collars turned up, mm -hmm. they could actually move amongst us and almost infiltrate us. Possibly, you know, you could, you could, you could attach kind of like a sinister connotation to that word infiltrate, um, you know, or you could suggest they may... Maybe we're just trying to find out more about us. But many of the contactees claim this, that, you know, the aliens weren't just coming down and having these meetings in isolated locations, but they're actually subtly moving amongst us and that they look very much like us. But, you know, if you were to catch one in the eye and look at them closely, there would be a few subtle differences, perhaps like the eye differences being slightly further wide excuse me, farther apart, or the nose is longer, or the lips in some cases are described as being very, very thin. But 
you know, with a few things like sunglasses, hats, etc., they were able to describe, uh, disguise that factor, and and that was one of the points Bethram touched upon in his particular ex, uh, description of aura rains that you just read out. Well, there are some. You've made some major contributions to oh, this area, um, and we're going to jump ahead when we return. Uh, there's plenty of others we need to talk about. Obviously, we need to talk about Antonia Villas, Villas Boas. What you have uncovered here is just brilliant. When you on chapter 20, inventing the aliens. Um, I'd like to, when we return, talk a little bit about Antonio, uh, and then uh, uh, I, I've, I could almost see that that being that Antonio was with, with that red hair. That red hair and the and the and, and the snarling, biting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I could see the picture was. You had a good picture there, and, and uh, when we but when we find out when we that there is some kind of a link here between our government possibly, mm-hmm. and the contactees. I think this is even though it may have been touched on by others, I think you really bring this out really well when we return with Nick Redfern, Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, New Page Books. Let's see, nickredfern40in.blogspot.com. And that's linked to the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. And a little smoke on the waters here. You know what smoke on the waters was all about, huh? Do you? Did he tell you where he came from? Yes, this time he told me he was from Venus, although I have met men out of, uh, from other planets as well. What were their clothes like? Uh, the woman had a radiant red box pleated skirt and a black velvet appearing blouse and a black and red tam or beret. And the men had clothes very similar to our Greyhound bus drivers. Very yeah. similar uniforms. Well, I, that proves that Greyhound bus drivers really were aliens. Isn't that right, Nick? Well, you never know. You know, aliens could be in disguise anywhere, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But that was that famous line there. I enjoyed that great deal. Now, we got to move lickety-split. There's so much to cover. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's do, let's do Antonio first, and then we'll go into uh, uh, the possibility that the government had something to do with all this stuff. Uh, a Brazilian man, Brazilian man named Antonio Villas Boas claimed a close encounter of a very sexual nature, whoa, boy, with a female alien while on board a spacecraft. Uh, what are your views? Well, I, before I ask you your views, just tell us what happened, and then we can talk about those views. Yeah, sure. This, this uh, basically, Bob, is a story from 57, and in later years, Antonio Villas-Boas, who lived in Brazil, um, became a very well-respected lawyer. In his teens, late teens and early 20s, however, he was working on the family farm, um, outside of Brazil, and on one particular night in '57, I finished work and was sort of still sat on the tractor, just waiting, you know, to, taking a break before going home uh, or driving home, and across the fields, and said that he saw this strange light in the sky coming towards him, which obviously had no idea what it was, kind of looked like a star, but getting closer and closer. And as he got, I guess, really close, he realised that it was some sort of vehicle a type of which he'd never seen before and he panicked jumped off the tractor and basically ran as fast as he could towards the house however before he got there he said the object obviously touched down on the ground and a number of male aliens he, he presumed got off the craft chased after him dragged him down and pulled him back and took him on board the craft and it was while on board the craft that he said he was sort of rendered into like an altered state as if he'd been drugged somehow, and, you know, his senses weren't quite what they should be. He felt groggy, and, you know, his mind wasn't reacting properly. But he said he was taken into one particular room, again, while still in this altered state, and said that when he was in there, this very, I guess, human-looking uh, female alien came in, came into the room, and but she had, again, slight differences, like, for example, the her eyes were more... I guess, Asian-slash-cat-like, almost, in many respects. Um, and whereas, you know, within today's alien abduction stories, we hear everything about um, you know, aliens extracting human sperm and eggs and DNA, but in a cold and clinical scientific fashion, with Billis Boas, he claimed to have literally had, had sex with this alien woman, after which he kind of um, 
held her hand to her stomach and smiled and pointed to the sky, which he interpreted as meaning, you know, she was an alien and felt that this was sort of like some sort of genetic experimentation in the same way that we hear from the abductees today, but obviously, you know, in a, in a different, even a different fashion. Um, and he, he sat on this story for a couple of years until he mentioned it to a friend, and then he got to a UFO researcher, and then, of course, you know, the, the story spilled out. But until his, you know, his dying day, Villas Boas stood by this account, um, as he said it happened. And, you know, again, as a, as a respected lawyer, it certainly didn't do his career any good to talk about this. But to his credit, you know, he said, I'm not going to lie and deny it. He said, this is what I recall happening. And, you know, and, and related the story, as I said, to his his last days. Now, uh, when you let's switch, um, go all the way up to Chapter 20. Inventing aliens. Now, uh, there's been obviously there was been a lot of focused attention on on this particular case, but but uh, some of us, including myself, had had a few doubts about certain things. It's not that it's not that I don't believe that there are aliens or that UFOs, but but there were certain things in it that indicated to me that maybe some, something uh, needed to be uncovered, and and uh, your book does that. On, in Chapter 20 with Rich Reynolds, uh, a long time. Could tell, tell us what uh, Rich Reynolds has brought to the table that I wish would have been brought to the table on this a long time ago. Yeah, well, what, you know, I mean, I, I'm fully in, in agreement with you, Bob, that, you know, I think there's a genuine alien presence here. And by alien, I mean literally really unexplained that has nothing to do, you know, with hoaxing, misidentification, the government or anything. It's a definitively alien presence that, that moves amongst us. However, there are indications that at times government agencies may have tried to manipulate the UFO subject to promote different belief systems or to even stage UFO incidents to see how people might react in a real UFO experience. And this is one of the things that comes out in the Villas Boas case. You mentioned Rich Reynolds, who's a friend of mine and a, a long-time, well-respected UFO researcher who's you know, done a lot of high-quality research into the subject and you know, dug deeply and extensively into it. And he had the um, occasion to interview um, a man who um, was actually involved with the, with the U.S. government, um, named Bosco Nedeljkovic, um, a number of years ago, who claimed that the, although the Villas Boas case was very, very real, he claimed that he didn't have actually anything to do with what we call, you know, literal extraterrestrials, if you like. And according to, <coughs> excuse me, according to Nedelkovich's story, um, the elements of the U.S. government, the U.S. intelligence community, were undertaking experimentation, mind-altering drug experimentation in the 50s, which we know went on. You know, ironically, it was one of the key staple parts of the Frank Olson story in this new book, you know, that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, but the, the story from Nedelkovich was that the government knew that there were a number of genuine UFO incidents going on, but they decided to stage also a number of incidents, again, to see how the public would react, what the media reaction would be. And Nedelkovich said that the Villas Boas case was an example of this, where they flew a helicopter fitted with unusual lights and things like this over this particular area where the people, you know, hadn't probably seen even helicopters before that much, and staged the incident where Villas Boas was taken on board, drugged, and then subjected to an experience which may have involved a real woman, but also involved sophisticated. Um, mind-altering technologies, perhaps even holograms and created devices, you know, devices built to look alien but actually didn't perform any real task as such uh, beyond, you know, convincing the person that they were alien. And then it was kind of a case of letting the man go, letting the drugs wear off and him regain his senses, and then seeing who he told and how the response and what the response was, and then the CIA gauging, you know, how the public and the media and the UFO community responded to this event, and it would allow them, in the event of a real, mm -hmm. I guess, UFO invasion, if you like, to see how the public might react at a, you know, a psychological and sociological level. And again, it's, it's, it's almost, the story is almost as controversial as the idea that Villas-Boas actually met aliens. Yeah. But 
when you take into consideration that we know that the government was doing some really weird advanced mind control experimentation back in those days with things like MKUltra and the Frank Olsen story, it becomes actually quite plausible that this would spill over into the UFO field as well. Especially since they were hoping that LSD or some of the other drugs they were experimenting with people who didn't know what was going on. I mean, yes. they didn't know they were getting LSD. Um, that Their hopes were to have uh, some kind of truth serum or, yeah. and I've seen also written, and I'm look, that's why I can't wait to read A Terrible Mistake, as uh, developing contract murderers. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the interesting areas that, I, again, I focus on quite deeply in the book. I mean, another man who I talk about was Orfeo Angelucci, another famous contactee of the 50s. One of his prime encounters actually began when he said that this very human-looking person asked him to drink a liquid into which the person dropped a couple of pills. And it's quite clear from um, Angelucci's words that when he, drunk this, when he drank this liquid, that he was entered into a, an altered state. He talked about how everything around him seemed to, the colors seemed to change. It was almost also as if just physical objects in the room seemed to take on lives of their own mm -hmm. and seemed to have a, some sort of hidden meaning to them. And if you, if you look at people under LXD experiences and you read Angelucci's accounts of, you know, colors changing and swirling figures and, magical experience. It sounds like he was put into an LSD-induced state. And what's particularly interesting is that he said that when he was in this state, he noticed in the location where it occurred, there were two, as he called them, Marines, military Marine guys, watching him very intently, as if they were almost there to monitor the situation. And as I speculate in the book, perhaps to ensure it didn't get out of hand. You know, it certainly did happen with the Olsen case, mm -hmm. you know, yes. when he ended up going out of, the, of a window. Um, so I think there's good evidence that some of these cases may have been staged events to allow the government to test out new radical means of altering people's minds and controlling them and engaging to what extent they work. You know, if you convince someone they're seeing aliens, in other words, you can convince them of anything, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, obviously, I think they this was something the CIA at that time. I, I, I really, even though they got caught and even though... It got out in the newspapers. I was just amazed that, that it reminded me a little bit of uh, the situation with Richard Nixon in which, in which uh, all the things he could have got called at, what really brought him down was such a small thing in comparison to just outrageous things he was, mm. he was up to. Uh, so that I used, to, I used to always hear because, you know, I married into a heavily Republican family and I've heard just about every excuse in the world uh, <laughs> as to why Richard Nixon was a great president, which obviously he was not. Uh, but still, it uh, made no difference. Uh, their feeling was, by and large, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a good man. He only got him because uh, he didn't know that these guys were doing what they were doing. Well, poor Richard. Yeah, poor Richard. Right. <laughs> well, we're in need, to, obviously, we're just about out of time for this uh, hour. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more of uh, these contactees. Oh, we've got to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the policeman taking aboard a UFO in 67. Now, now you see... This story in regards to to um, the possibility that government has been utilizing these now is affecting me in every way I look at all of these other people uh, and the experiences they had. Because were they genuine or were they products of our government? Well, we'll find out maybe when we get back with Nick Redfern, Contactees, A History of Alien Human Interaction, New Page Books. You can reach Nick Redfern at nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. But I used to love to sing these songs. Our uh, guest for the next, oh gosh, we're about 10 or so minutes here, is Nick Redfern, Contactees, A History of Alien Human Interaction, New Page Books. Go to nickredfern.com which is linked on front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. That's 1-800-227-3371. Nick, could you please tell us the story about the policeman taking aboard a UFO in 1967 who claimed to have spoken with an extraterrestrial? Yeah, sure, Bob. This relates to a man named Herbert Shermer, um, a police officer who, actually on the early, early hours of December the 3rd, 1967, he was doing his 
in his daily patrol um, in the town of Ashland, Nebraska. And when he was driving along, obviously, you know, late at night, early hours, he saw this, um, what he thought initially at least, was a truck um, broken down by the side of the road. And so as he closed in on it, he switched his headlights onto high beam to have a good look at it and then realized that it actually wasn't a truck at all, that it seemed to be an oval-shaped object that was hovering about eight feet above the ground which had um, red lights, seemed to have red lights on the inside of it that were sort of shining um, through some sort of window-like um, opening on the craft itself. Um, as he just sat there and watched it, because he didn't really know what to do, he said uh, what looked like flames almost shot out of it, uh, which was accompanied by what he described as a siren-like sound. Um, but the object rose into the air, and vanished as it just literally flew over his car, which was described as like a few feet above the patrol car and was suddenly gone. Um, now, according to Shermer, the whole thing from first seeing it to stopping, wondering what it was and for it to leaving took about 10 minutes. Um, and right afterwards, he raced back to the police station to write up his report. Um, but when he got back, he found that although he thought it had only taken 10 minutes, almost an hour of time seemed to be missing from his experience and from, you know, his nighttime patrol. And obviously wondering what happened, eventually he underwent regressive hypnosis to try and recover the, the missing memories of that 50 or so minutes that he couldn't account for. And when he was put under hypnosis by Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a psychologist, um, a story came out that what Sherman failed to remember was that all of these memory was wiped clean was that he, he got out the vehicle and was approached by three human-looking creatures around about five feet in height. And one of them, who he took to be the leader, as he described it, who was slightly taller than the others, asked him a question, said, are you the watchman of this place, presumably meaning you know, a police officer? And he said yes. And um, he was basically taken on board the craft. And it wasn't described as like a kidnapping or an abduction. It was almost as if the aliens actually wanted him to see the craft possibly even with the intent of having him go back and tell people about the experience, um, you know, as if to sort of, again, get us acclimatized to the idea that they were amongst us. And he said that he went on board the craft. Um, and again, you know, there was an exchange about why the aliens were here, they were watching us, uh, the nature of their technology. And the just before the... Sherman was taken off the craft, one of the aliens sort of made a curious comment to him and reportedly said, we want you to believe in us, but not too much. And it was almost as if, as, you know, as speculating the book, that the aliens want us to know they're here, but they don't want us to be too overly reliant upon them. You know, the idea of one highly advanced culture overwhelming another culture. It's like they want us to believe in them, but not be reliant upon you know, them teaching mm -hmm. us everything. And I think, again, it was almost like a a staged encounter in the sense of they deliberately wanted to have somebody on board who would go back and speak about it and subtly spread the message that, you know, they were kind of moving amongst us at a restricted level. That or, or you know, it could also be that they're uh, it's very similar to the the Boas situation. Yeah, exactly. It yeah, could the be Boas case. That you know, we cannot discount the idea that again, this was a staged incident. Hence, you know, the, the human-looking aliens. Um, and again, certainly, you know, the government has done a lot of research into not just mind control, but you know, mind manipulation to wiping memories out, um, rendering people into altered states via advanced technology like acoustics. You know, been a lot of research done on acoustics how they can you know, render people into almost like a hypnotic state. Um, and my personal view is that, you know, if we ever get the truth about the UFO mystery, there's going to be our UFOs and their UFOs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to yeah. be a real UFO phenomenon, but there's going to be evidence, if the story ever fully comes out, of how government agencies have also used the subject to their advantage to manipulate it and, and to manipulate us as well. Yes, as uh, my, my most favorite... Uh, actually, I'm biased in this direction. Uh, a UFO researcher from the old school is uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée, mm. who, as you, you certainly well understood what he was talking about in this book, as a, you know, more or less um, 
most of the, and you know the controversy Jacques, Jacques went through mm. back there oh, in the early 90s with all the other ufologists. I mean, they just, really, yeah. they couldn't tolerate what he was saying, which he's saying, well, there may be UFOs, but that's not necessarily what we're looking at here. No, I, no, I think in that respect, I would sort of share a lot of Jacques Vallée's views in the sense that, you know, he viewed the notion that there, there is a very real UFO phenomenon, and I don't doubt that for one minute, but I think the phenomenon itself has been manipulative, and governments have realized that there are ways in which, although there's a real phenomenon, they can manipulate it as well, and mm-hmm. it becomes a case where it becomes harder and harder to differentiate which are between the real aliens and which is government agencies staging UFO incidents. Um, and I think, I think it is you know, difficult to determine which cases fall into one category and, and which other cases fall into the other category. Well, the final question I need to ask you is, why did you write this book? I mean, most other researchers would have basically said, oh, that's been covered. We know all that field, uh, you know, and besides... Who knows what they were in contact with? But evidently, you felt it was super important to put all this effort in. Why? Well, I think there were several reasons, actually, Bob. One being that, you know, a lot of people who today may be new to the subject have heard about Area 51, abductions, flying triangles. But because a lot of the magazines today are very much news-based, you know, the tendency is, unfortunately, for a lot of the older historical stories to get lost and forgotten. And... Certainly in speaking with people in the subject who are new to it, many of them had no real inkling or idea as to what the contact team movement was all about. They just dismissed it based on a few fragmentary stories they'd heard here and there that people saying, oh, it's all nonsense, ignore it, let's focus on abductions, etc. So that was one of the reasons. The other one was that you know a lot of words have been written about the contact team experiences. What I felt hadn't been done to any a large extent was to try and explain what might lie at the heart of these stories, hence the reason why, as you know, in about the last five or six chapters of the book, that doesn't really discuss incidents, but discusses a a whole variety of theories that might explain it, the phenomenon. So I think that, I felt that was important to get across, that, you know, there are actually a number of highly intriguing and potentially valid areas that might help us explain the mystery. And it has nothing to do, you know, with hoaxing or just fantasizing, but some sort of far deeper and more controversial areas as well. Well, I am very thankful you did so because it means uh, there's a lot of information I just obviously would have overlooked because unfortunately when you do radio shows, you got to pick and choose the things you, you know, you can't do everything. And uh, and usually when, if if you had not written this book, I don't think I would have read it, Nick. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, I, I always try and bring something new to the table if I can and, you know, try and get people thinking about the phenomenon. And, you know, if it brings the subject to a bigger audience and gets more exposure and gets more people asking questions, then hopefully more questions we get, the more answers we'll eventually get as well. So. That's the way it works. Thank you for joining us, Nick Redfern. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks for You're very, show. very welcome. Contactees, a history of alien-human interaction, new page books. You can reach Nick Redfern at nickredfern40.blogspot.com. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And remember, shine your shoes and get a haircut.